Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Well, good morning to, to, to all of you and to Grace Church of the Bay Area. I'm thankful to be here and in particular just for the opportunity to, uh, to serve and uh, to give uh, my friend, Pastor Roger, uh, just a reprieve from preaching responsibilities to allow for him just to be with his family uh, during this, this difficult season. Um, Roger, Jenny, and the boys uh, in this church are on our hearts uh, and in our prayers, and, uh, and we, we mourn with you. Uh, but we mourn as those with hope. And so uh, we count it a privilege um, just to be able to come alongside uh, the Chen family and this church family during uh, just this difficult time. And so I'm glad that I can just step in just for uh, this Sunday to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please take them and turn with me to the gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And uh, the Lord really laid this on my heart to be able to to share with you uh, this morning from uh, Matthew 5. And we'll be looking at verses 14 through 16. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 14. And I'll read the text for us, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of God. Uh, The passage we're looking at uh, is really a section of a larger sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. And this whole sermon is really about discipleship. And what does it mean to really follow Jesus? See, what we understand as believers is that being a disciple is more than just believing in Jesus and reading our Bibles. But what Jesus tells us is that being a disciple carries with it a certain responsibility to this world. Uh, if, If I can put it this way, that there's an upward, inward, and outward movement in the Christian life. The Christian life is about a relationship with Christ and with other believers, but it's also about a relationship with the world. See, our faith isn't intended to be lived in isolation from everyone else. No far from it, Jesus has us live out our faith in the world. He sends us out into the world, as it were, to follow Christ. Why? Because we are meant to impact those around us and to affect the world for good and for God. And that's the sum of these few verses here. Jesus gives two metaphors of what a Christian's function is in this world and his or her relationship to it, namely that we are to be salt and light. And that is is really the purpose for which we've been called, that we as Christians are to live out our faith in a way where we function in these two ways. And what Jesus teaches here really drives the conviction that I know of this church and your heart of wanting to reach the lost for Christ. As believers, if we want to be faithful to follow Christ, we need to be salt and light. And so the question is, what does that look like? 
Well, for this morning, we're going to expand on that. And I want to look specifically at, at the second of the two metaphors and that of being light of the world. And in this text, we see three facets to Jesus' statement of what it means to be light of the world. First, if you're taking notes, we, we see here the mandate. There's context that, that's being set here. When Jesus says that you are light of the world, this isn't only a statement about Christians. It's a statement about the world in which the Christian lives. Christ is pointing to a particular problem, and it's this, that the world we live in is in utter darkness. And it's not hard to see. It's, it seems like every week that there's more terrorism, there's another mass shooting, there's genocide in some part of the world, there's corruption among another leader, there's oppression of people groups and nations, there's some sexual scandal, abuse, or exploitation again in the news. This world is shrouded in the deepest, depraved, degraded darkness that you can imagine. The Lord himself makes a commentary about this and says this in, in John chapter 3. And this is a condemnation. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because of their works, which were evil. Do you see what our Lord is saying? It's not simply that darkness is around us. It's that the darkness is also in us. The darkness is internal. The darkness is part of our nature. The darkness affects our actions and as a result affects the world that we inhabit. And this world is seemingly getting darker. Where man isn't getting better, man is getting worse. And there's no longer pretense about this. If you go back to the end of the 19th century, there was great optimism in the Western world that the world was a good place and that it was getting better and that it was moving towards something of a, a golden age. And it was based on this idea of social evolution, that man was good, that he was ascending, that he was progressing, that he was moving towards perfection. And the thought was that soon enough, wars would be abolished. Diseases would be eradicated. Sufferings would cease. And much of this, they believed, would come as a result of education, science, and technology. And yet today, you'll find no one who believes that at all. Where, where there was once optimism about the world, there's a deep pessimism, a skepticism, a cynicism about life and about humanity in our day and age. And we see this actually reflected in the literature from both those times. In the 1850s, there was a book written entitled The Coral Island. It was a story about a group of English schoolboys who were shipwrecked on an island. And they had to build a whole new world and civilization. And what comes about is this happy ending of paradise, of love, of unity, and equality. Now, what's interesting is that in 1954, only a century later, William Golding comes along and writes the same plot in a book entitled, What? The Lord of the Flies. And in it, a group of English schoolboys are also shipwrecked on an island. But it doesn't turn out the same way. Instead, those who know the story, these young men, they vie for power, they kill each other and hunt each other down. It, it reflected such a dramatic shift in attitude toward our world in just a short span of time. 
It was a change in perspective that the world is dark. It is messed up. It is lost and and hopeless. The world is recognizing what has always been true. See, from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, people are born into a fallen state of sin and separation from God where sin corrupts our nature and it darkens our minds and hearts and we live in a state of spiritual darkness ever since. And it's to this reality that Jesus comes into our world as the light. John says that he came as the true light. Our Lord declares that he is the light of the world. Jesus alone brings the light of salvation to our dark world. To the darkness of falsehood, he is a light of truth. To the darkness of ignorance, he is a light of wisdom. To the darkness of sin, he is a light of holiness. To the darkness of sorrow, he is a light of joy. To the darkness of death, he is the light of life. He is the light in every way that this world needs and longs for. But now, Jesus says something incredible. He says, you are light of the world. He's not saying you should be light of the world. It's a statement of fact that you are the light of the world. And Jesus is actually in that statement, placing his name on us as it were. And in so doing, he's pointing to something amazing that's happened to you and to me. Literally, Jesus is saying this, that you've been lit, that you've been lit by my presence. You've been lit by my grace. You've been lit by my glory. Because he is the light that lights everyone in this world who comes to him in faith. We are called to come to the light and believe in the light. And as a result, we become children of light. And we are called to walk in the light and then to shine as the light. And this has always been Jesus' plan. He came as a true light It says, but notice what Jesus says in John 9, that while I am in the world, I am the light of the world, hinting that the light would not always be in the world. He was indicating in John 9 that at some point, he as a light would be removed from this world. And that's exactly what happened. Following his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven and he takes a seat at the right hand of the father. And so for the time being, the true light is not here. And what the Lord is saying is this, that amidst my absence, you are now light of the world. This world is darkness, but you're different now. You've been changed. You've been lit. And this is the reality of who you are. And notice it's not an imperative here. It's an indicative. This isn't what you're to do. This isn't what you're to be. This is what you are. He's not saying that you're to achieve this, but you already are this. And he's saying live then as you already are. And that's really much of the Christian life. It's not about becoming something else, but it's about living in light of what you already are. You are light of the world. And so live like it. And fulfill the purpose of what you are because this world desperately needs you. And it needs you more than it knows. Realize that's the mission of the church. See, the the greatest issue in our world isn't politics, 
It isn't education. It isn't economics. It's sin. It's the sin in the hearts of the people who inhabit this world. That's the fundamental problem, really, of humanity. So then you can't change the heart and the human condition and this world by extension by educating, legislating, and manipulating the issues from the outside. No, it's only changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ who saves, forgives, and changes people from the inside out. And God has given us this light to shine in the midst of darkness to bring about the transformation that only he can bring. This is the mandate that's given to us as a church. But secondly, we see the challenge here. Our Lord has been telling us of who we are as believers, and he goes on to say, in effect, don't conceal then who you are. He's issuing a challenge to not hide our witness as believers. And Jesus expands on this by giving two illustrations here. He says this in verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Again, note the statement as one of being. He doesn't say become a light, light your light, or get some light. He says you are light. Specifically, you're, you're light on top of a hill. Now, in the Holy Land during Jesus' time, you would find that cities are built on top of hills. When night came, it was a very common occurrence for the inhabitants to light a lamp in the house. And the inevitable result is that this light atop a hill would be seen for miles on end across the valley. The point is a city on a hill, as it's lit, is always seen. And the implication is that as a believer, the choice isn't really if you'll be a light or not a light, but if you'll shine your light or hide your light. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 15. Notice what he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. He's saying people don't light a lamp only to put it under a basket because that would be absurd because light is supposed to be seen. And so that's the question. Friends, as light, are you being seen or not being seen? If you're not being seen, that is, if you're not evangelizing or people don't see you living out your faith or they don't know that you're a believer, it's because you've chosen to hide your light like someone who puts a light under a basket. I've come across this text so many times and I never saw the significance of what our Lord is saying here, that this isn't a passive issue. It is an active hiding that our Lord alludes to. Do you realize that? Because you think about it, the very act of putting a light under a basket is intentional. So what's being implied isn't just a passive neglect in something like evangelism. It's an active disobedience. It's a deliberate hiding of the faith. And so it begs the question, do you hide your light? And who you really are. So what are ways that we might do this? Let me just give you a few considerations. It's concealing our faith. 
Maybe it's never having talked about your faith with family and friends who have known you all your life. Maybe it's at work and a controversial topic comes up and you know what the Bible teaches, but you don't want to say anything because you know how unpolitically correct that your answer is. Maybe if someone asks you what you did over the weekend and you conveniently leave out church. Maybe it's not that you mind people knowing that you're a Christian, but you don't want them to know what you really believe. And so you're okay as long as you're one of those Christians in their eyes who's open-minded, who doesn't judge sin. You're not trying to proselytize. And so you stay within this space. Maybe you hide your light by compromising your testimony. You have resentment towards people. You slander and gossip about coworkers and even people at church. Or it's that you have a complaining attitude about life. You often express discontent. You're frankly just a negative person who spreads negativity so that you're not really drawing people to you. Instead, you're driving them away. Or you hide your light by conforming to the world. Maybe you've made it a goal to succeed according to the world's standards. And so life is really about just getting a good job, working towards the next pay scale, buying a home. It's about prestige and esteem from others in your life. And so because you've com- you really conform to the world's standards and really to its standards of success, what you're living for then is no different than what unbelievers are living for. Do you see that in these ways and more, like a lamp under a basket, you, you hide your light and witness for Christ. Your faith is not being seen. But maybe that the most common way that we hide our light is congregating only with other Christians. Now think about this. Why is this hiding your light? Because we can't shine our lights when we're around other lights. You think about the stars. When it's daytime, we don't see them. At the same time, we know the stars are still there. It's not like they disappeared or that someone put them away or that they've been turned off. But why is it that we can't see them? Because there's plenty of light from the sun. See, stars shine the brightest in the darkness. In our passage, there's a sense of strategy here. Lamps should be placed on the stand to give off the most light. We need to be placed where we give off the most light in the darkness. Obviously, our our deepest fellowship should be with other believers. But Christ doesn't say that we're light of the church. No, we're, we're light of what? The world. And so let me ask you, do you hide your light or do you shine it? Where are you trying to shine your light? Or maybe ask, where can you be better about shining your light? For my wife, Carissa, and I, uh, it's been with our neighbors. And this was something that we became really convicted about. Because for so long, we would see our neighbors sometimes every day, and we felt like that we were hiding our lights from them. And so we prayed about wanting to be better at this and to grow in this particular area. And so we took steps to be more proactive in spending time with them. And some of the things that we tried to do, hopefully just as suggestions to you, is that we try to be better about making an effort to talk to our neighbors, 
beyond just a casual waving of hi and to simply ask how they're doing. Uh, Carissa's been scheduling playdates with other moms on our block to build relationships with them. I've coordinated uh, runs with a couple of our neighbors and, and I've made it a point to talk about the things of faith during those runs. Uh, Chris and I have tried to be intentional to, to make friends with those at the local dog park. And God, and God has opened so many doors for us to both have opportunities to share the gospel, to counsel and to pray with them and for them. And we've even been able to bring some of them to church. Uh, a, little, a little over a month ago, uh, we were able to be a part of a block party uh, that our neighborhood puts on every year for Halloween. And the thing is, for so many years, we declined going. For one, it cost $50. And that's, that's super expensive, I think, for us, we felt like. But, uh, but the other thing was that every year, it's been scheduled on, on a Sunday. And because simply, they're just all pagans, right? And so, so for us, church just became a very convenient excuse for us not going. And the thing is, we knew that it's not because we, we couldn't make it back in time for some of it, but we knew in our heart of hearts that we didn't want to. Because a lot of times we felt really out of place. We had maybe social anxiety about meeting people. We didn't want it to be awkward. And we realized that behind these excuses, we were really hiding our light. And we were choosing to withdraw from an opportunity to shine the brightest in this setting. And so in light of this failure, God convicted us. And so last year, after eight years of living in the neighborhood, we finally joined the party for 15 minutes, okay? But, but we felt that that was progress, okay? <laughs> but this past year, we made it a point to be there for as long as we could, to actually help out, to be involved, and we spent time with these precious souls in hopes that we can share Jesus with them. And I share this not because we're great at this, but we're trying to, to grow in this area of being lights as well. And I'm not saying that you should just do something just to be around unbelievers or that you should put yourself in a compromising situation or to go to places where you know that you'll be tempted to sin. And I'm guessing for some of you, you you're around unbelievers all the time, maybe at work. And sometimes it's just easier to maybe ignore them and just to kind of go on your way and just to mind your own business. But what if you invested in them? What if you invited them to lunch or to go out to coffee with you, to spend time doing something that they enjoy doing and finding common interest there in hopes that we might be able to show the love of Christ, but also share the love of Christ. So I want you to ask yourself again, how am I hiding my light and how can I instead be intentional in my relationships for the gospel and shining my light in the world? Third, we see the exhortation. If verse 15 is a negative appeal of don't hide your light, verse 16 then is the positive appeal, namely to shine your light. Our Lord shifts from what we shouldn't do to what we should do as disciples. And he says this in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Here our Lord is giving an exhortation. We know that we're not supposed to hide our light, but rather shine our light. And so the question is, how do we do this? 
And Jesus tells us it's through your good works. Our Lord is speaking of conduct here. The Christian life is marked not only by what you don't do, but also, in fact, by what you do do. That there's a certain way of life and conduct that Christ is commanding for believers to have. And it's a conduct that's honorable, that is excellent, that is good, Jesus says. And and now it's really interesting because the Greek word here for good is the word kolos. And it literally means beautiful. Christ is saying that Christians are to have a life to do good works that are so lovely, so noble, so attractive that it beckons unbelievers to you. Because your life invariably gives validity to the gospel where they see something about your life that draws them to Christ and they'll realize that there's no other explanation for how you are other than Jesus. Your good works realize it gives you credibility to the message that you preach. And it's on this platform of credibility that personal witness then has its greatest impact. Unbelievers will see your exceptional life and some will be saved as a result when the gospel is preached to them because your life has confirmed what it is you preach. Friends, I know however much that you might be lacking in your evangelism and that this has maybe been a struggle for you and that maybe this is a weakness of yours. I know that you care about your unsaved family and friends and you want them to believe upon Christ. And I wanna tell you that if you're to shine your light to be an effective witness to this world, then you got to have your behavior pure, your behavior excellent, your behavior lovely, to have your behavior strikingly attractive from the ugliness that they see in others in this world. One of our friends who does photography for a living had the opportunity of a lifetime to work with this world-renowned photographer. This photographer is featured in magazines, has won numerous awards, and is recognized as one of the best wedding photographers in the world. She has an impressive resume of celebrity weddings, which she's done, and is one of the most sought after and successful photographer of our day and generation. And if you see her work, it's absolutely stunning. And our friend was able to learn under her, to shadow her, to assist her for a period of time. And on one particular occasion, our friend had the opportunity to travel the world with her and went to Europe for weddings that this famous photographer was hired to shoot. And it seemed by all accounts that our friend was living the dream. And I remember when we asked our friend how it was, what her experience was like working with someone whose work was admired by so many people, our friend told us that it was awful. Not the experience itself, but her. The photographer was awful. She was an awful person, our friend said, in the way that she spoke to people, the way that she treated those who worked for her, the way that she put them down, the way that she demeaned them and said really nasty things about them and the people that she even photographed. 
And it broke her heart. And I'll never forget the comment that she made. She said this, how is it that someone can take photos that are so beautiful and yet her life is so ugly? And that's sometimes true of us. At times, there's a disconnect with the exterior of our lives and how we live. We can talk and pray so eloquently. We can serve so faithfully. We can look like we have it all together as a Christian. We can seem to have really an Instagram-worthy kind of life to envy. We, we know a Savior so beautiful, and yet our hearts and lives are so ugly because of what we say and what we do in this world is in disbelief. Do you have a life that is beautiful? Is your life so remarkable that it shows up the contrast between the beauty of Christ and what's around you? Is it honorable or is it ugly? Do you blend in and there's nothing that stands out at all? It does nothing to attract others to the gospel. And again, I want to remind you that if you're a believer, the beauty of your life ought to draw others to the beauty of our God. And I believe that's the sort of life that Jesus is talking about here. So oftentimes, we know this. The temptation is to look like the world, to blend in, to to be accepted and thought well of by others. And Jesus says, be different. It's the strangeness of our lives that is paradoxically beautiful. And it is what evangelizes to the unsaved. When our life goes against the grain of our culture and it looks so different from them, we are preaching to them. And the effect it has on people is that they will see something about who God is and how great that he is, that he is a God that changes lives. And again, it beckons people to want what you have because that life is so distinct from this world. And so the question is, how does this look like? Well, what can we do? Let me just close with a a few practical suggestions for how we can be light individually and corporately as a church. First, I think what the text is saying here is that we are to reflect Christ. The first app, First practical application is to reflect Christ in our lives because, again, it's, it's a godly life that preaches to the world. Realize by nature, Christ-like living confronts a functional denial of God, where people are confronted with actions that are not intuitive to them and can only be explained by the presence of God in one's life. And how this happens is the world will notice your conversations are seasoned with grace. That you build up with your words rather than tear down. People observe that there's a steadfast trust in God when things around you are falling apart. They see a joy that's grounded in the promises of God that he is working all things together for good. Unbelievers will see that you are generous and not tight-fisted because money is not an idol in your life and instead Jesus is your greatest treasure. Family and friends see that your marriage is founded on God and when there is sin between each other, there is forgiveness and unconditional love and commitment to each other. 
those around you will notice your compassion for people, that you care for those who are otherwise not cared for in this world, that you love the unlovable, and at times you show this love to those who least deserve this. And whenever you're selfless and kind and humble and compassionate and merciful and gracious and loving, and reflecting these qualities that Christ himself embodied, people will wonder why. And that wonderment is the spirit of God working in their hearts because they've met an anomaly. They've met something that they can't explain. And it testifies to a life that's been lit by grace. And it gives opportunities for pointing to the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the believer. Let me tell you something. I came to Christ because of the Christ like life of our neighbors. We had moved into a new part of town and we met this family that was so genuine in their care for our family. And in countless ways, they served us when we didn't deserve it. And it left such an impression on me. And one of the guys really tried to build a relationship with me. He made time to talk to me, to engage me, to play sports with me. And I realized that many of the things that I'm trying to do as a neighbor that he did for me. And eventually he took me to church and I got saved. See, he introduced me to Christ through his life. He gave me a glimpse of the gospel and how he lived. And when I saw his good works, I fulfilled what Jesus says here. I gave glory to our father who is in heaven because I could believe in the gospel, having seen the effects of a life that looked like Christ. Another way of being light is to practice mercy. It's been said that our commitment as believers is both to the great commission and the great commandment namely to love God and love people. And this takes the form of mercy. And this call is something that's found all throughout God's word. God has made it known that he has a special love for the vulnerable. And it's as we engage in mercy ministry that we show his love and shine as lights to the world. And this can look different for every church and for every believer. But let me just share with you maybe some ministries that we've been a part of as consideration. In the past, we've had the opportunity to go to the Tenderloin of San Francisco and partner with an organization called City Team. And there we serve those struggling with poverty and homelessness and addiction. And we're able to connect with the needy, to distribute food, uh, to offer our services, and most importantly, just offer up our, our friendship. And we're trying to show the love of Christ to them and it's open doors for many gospel conversations. We also have a group that's been working with anti-trafficking organizations to raise awareness of both the issues and the needs, to volunteer our skills and services. And, and we're financially supporting organizations that are in the front lines of combating trafficking and caring for survivors. We actually had an opportunity two months ago to be summoned to do translation for two women from, from China who are being delivered and rescued from trafficking. And the women that some of our ladies had a chance to meet had a chance to be able to share the gospel with them. 
And at one point, one of the, one of the ladies who was delivered from this life of uh, this, this just trafficking, the slavery that she was a part of, said that there's something different about your life that I can tell. I thought you were a part of this organization that, that, that had been a part of this sting operation and had delivered us, but I didn't know you were part of a church, but now I can tell. And I can see something that's different about you. God, it was just opening doors just through our involvement with these organizations. Uh, during Christmas time, every year, there's a ministry called Operation Christmas Child that, that's connected to Samaritan's Purse and churches. They have an opportunity to sponsor shoe boxes and help put together shoe boxes of gifts and deliver it to children around the world with the gospel. Orphan care is another consideration. And God calls us to, to look after orphans and vulnerable children. And this is something that, that is really close to the heart of God. And not everyone is called to adoption, but everyone is called to orphan care. And this can be advocacy. This can be financial support in helping families who are fostering or adopting. It's offering services to these families. It's visiting orphans and spending time with foster children. And one obvious application is to even being open and prayerful about the possibility of adopting or fostering. These are just some tangible ways for us to be able to practice mercy. So I want to encourage you to look for ways to be involved individually and corporately through the avenues that are here for you at Grace Church and in your own life. So be light of the Lord, uh, be light of the world for the Lord in this way. Third and lastly, uh, share the gospel. We're not to limit ourselves to only a visible witness. Uh, Some people say that they share the gospel through their life, but but they forget that we're to share the gospel through our words as well. Uh, And this is implied in verse 16. Our Lord says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. The purpose of our good works is for men and women to give glory, it says, to our father who is in heaven. But in order to give glory to our father in heaven, it means that they would have had to heard who our father in heaven is. People can't be saved by seeing our good works. They, they need to hear, know, and believe the gospel we preach. Realize if there's no verbal witness to accompany our, our visible witness, people won't be able to make the connection to Christ. I mean, let, let's just say that you're a moral person. People might simply attribute that to upbringing or maybe to another religion. But they need to know that it's because of Christ saving you that you live as you do. And so... Let me just remind you then, what is the gospel that we're to share? The gospel is a message of Jesus Christ. It's that we have all sinned and broken God's law. And each of us deserves eternal punishment in the form of hell as a result. And Jesus describes hell as outer darkness. This world suffers under the curse of sin and perpetual spiritual darkness. But into this darkness, God in his love for sinners sends the light of the world, his very son, to shine into the night. Jesus comes not simply to teach or perform miracles, but to give his life as a sacrifice for sin, suffering eternal hell in our place, and he conquered it through his death and resurrection. Those who trust in Christ and what he's done can have eternal life. This is the amazing love of God in the gospel. And in knowing and experiencing this love, we have the privilege to now share this love with others.
And this becomes ultimately the motivation for why we share. That having been changed by his light, we want to share that light to others. And in the end, good works can't save anyone. We, we need to share the gospel. Let me just end with this. Realize the significance that you can have in this world. I think many of you are like me, where you don't think that your life will ultimately matter much. I think most of us realize that we'll live fairly insignificant lives, that we'll get a job, we'll make some money, maybe start a family, go to church, and then like billions before us, we'll die. And our existence in this world will end, and very few of us will be remembered beyond a generation. And yet here is Jesus saying that your life is significant. It is consequential. It is important. Not that we ourselves are important, but because we can be involved with something that really matters, that has eternal significance. We can be a part of something that changes the world as his witnesses. Have you considered that God could have spread the gospel any way he saw fit? He doesn't need us. He could have literally written in the sky. He could have used lightning bolts and pierced our hearts. Whatever he wanted to do to spread the gospel, he could. And instead, God allows us to represent him. He uses sinful, flawed, weak, and imperfect men and women to make a difference in this world and to bring people to salvation. So many of us are are just going through the motions of life and you forget that you've been given a higher calling. You have purpose. You've been lit. So let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, soften hearts that are here that might be hardened, Lord, to familiar truths. Lord, and help us, Lord, to recognize that so oftentimes we do make our lives about other things. And so we ask for your forgiveness. Help us to remember that life is all about you. And it's about shining the light of your glory to this dark world. And we pray that you would open the hearts of some who perhaps have been and still are in the darkness and to make us understand our call to come to the light and then to become lights in this world. Use us, Lord, to shine your lights when everything else fades. We thank you for the great privilege to be your light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.